Would you open your Bibles this morning uh, to the book of Revelation, chapter 21? We're going to be studying verses 9 through 27. The sermon title this morning is The New Jerusalem <clears throat> A Place or a People? A Place or a People? Alan did such a, a wonderful job uh, in Revelation 21, 1 through 8 a couple of Sundays ago, and the teaching of the text had the, the desired, desired hope that he had for it. It sure worked, the, the text sure worked in me to give me a desire, a growing desire to be with Jesus forever. I hope that that was your experience of that text, too. If you hadn't heard it, that was verses 1 through 8. I encourage you to go to our website and listen to that. Uh, it will grow your longing to be with the Lord and to live more fully for him now. And I hope that that similar thing happens today. This morning, as we read the text, I, I just want to ask you to ponder one question. Is the text telling us more about the place we will be living or the kind of people we will have become in the new heaven, in the new earth? So would you join me in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates 12 angels and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the three east gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurements, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate. I'm sorry, I should have looked how to, spell, how to pronounce that. The fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God 
gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, at face value, what a beautiful description of things. Lord, we know you wrote this vision, this description, this imagery that, dis- that tells a story about a reality, not just to get us, get our imaginations working. God, you wrote it to the first seven churches of Asia in, in Asia Minor because of the rigorous challenge and tribulation and temptation and despair, the attacks they were facing, the persecution they were facing. God, we know that this text was supposed to inspire their hearts. Would you cause it to do the same for us this morning, for your glory, for the joy of these precious people, and for our ongoing sanctification and hope in the future finished work of Jesus in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you find yourself struggling at times with overcoming a sin habit, like outbursts of anger or impatience or selfishness, trying to control people more than you serve people, could be laziness, could be lust. How often do you think of the streets of gold and pearly gates as your motivation to not give in to that sin? Um, When you are disgusted and discouraged with how slow you seem to grow as a Christian, uh, do the streets of gold and pearly gates encourage you? When you are faced with being rejected, even persecuted with your faith in Christ, do you you find strength to stand in remembering those streets of gold and those pearly gates? Haven't songs been written to remind us of those heavenly riches? Well, I'll be honest with you. For me, the streets of gold and pearly gates are not at the top of my list to think about when I'm struggling. But this morning, I hope we will see that God intends them to be a wonderful source of inspiration and strength toward giving us grace to overcome our sin, to to say no and and, and to defeat Satan and his temptations, to, to overcome and persevere through suffering, and to have fresh encouragement about our growth in godliness, our growth in both the character of Jesus, as well as the mission of Jesus. I I just want you to remember, I think this is so key as we get ready to close this book. Revelation was given to pastor us more than just to prophesy to us. This text is a pastoral text, and I, I hope by the end of this sermon, you'll be able to say, oh, thank goodness it was. This, this text pastored my heart. 
So let's go back once again to its original audience. Let's, I, I think that's sometimes some of the problems with Christian music that tries to incorporate some scripture. Sometimes they're, 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 they're singing about scripture, but they're not putting the context of the scripture in, into the song. And so, you know, I grew up, maybe many of you did, the, the songs about heaven were happy, clappy songs. And, and we talked about walking on streets of gold and pearly gates, and that, that's great. But I think some of those songs have been removed from the, the intent by which those, those texts were written. They were written to encourage the discouraged Christian. They were, they were written to give boldness so that we could stand true and firm in the face of persecution. So what is God intending us to gain from this description of these pearly gates and golden streets? Well, remember those seven churches of Asia Minor were a template that God would use to describe the challenges and temptations and persecutions and spiritual warfare that the churches of all ages face. And all of us have to overcome during the end times, which we learned in the study. The end times were from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. How did God intend this good news about the streets of gold and pearly gates pastor their hearts as they lived on the brink of compromising their faith, either due to horrible persecution or, or, or being tempted to give in to attractive but idolatrous temptations? I think God's wanting us to use this text not so much to show us what the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem will look like. I don't think that's the primary intent, and I think you'll see it in the text itself. I think God's wanting to show us what we'll be like on that day when we face him, when we look at him face to face. We have the, our resurrected, glorified bodies. There will be something very compelling about what God will make of us then that is supposed to inspire us today. I hope that, that our main point this morning can help us capture why our verses this morning are to motivate our growth and godliness and encourage us to never give up on God's transforming grace, both in ourselves and one another, regardless of how slow it's taking place or regardless of the dangers you have to walk through along the way. So the main point this morning is this. God gives us a vision of how we will become like him on that day to inspire and empower our hope and pursuit of becoming more like him today. So he's going to show us something of the beauty of that day to inspire us to keep going today. First point this morning, we're going to find in verses 9 through 14, and it's God's delight in the bride of Christ. So verse 9 says that one of the seven angels who once was an instrument of God's judgment against sin and Satan becomes now a tour guide to first speak to John about one of the most beautiful visions he would ever see. And so he uses the words, come and I will show you. You saw that when we read the text. Well, you know what? Back in chapter 17, verse 1, something very similar happened to John. And I think God intended to draw a contrast here to, to, set, to set the stage for us to get the most out of this passage as possible. We saw the same language spoken by an angel to John, come and I will show you. Oh, but boy, these two visions couldn't have been any more different. 
On both occasions, John is shown a woman. In chapter 17, the woman John saw was described as the great prostitute. You remember that? And that she was united. She was riding on the beast. And she was ruled by every form of idolatry and self-sufficiency and sinful indulgence. Which, which was fitting of the description of all the people who follow her. Thus, the woman was a description of the kind of people she represented. Think of that phrase. The woman was a representative of the kind of people she represented. The woman was also described as a city. You remember that? The woman was described as a city, Babylon the Great. But this was not a description of a specific place, but a specific kind of people. People in rebellion and disobedience to God. People, people, if they look to God, how many, how many times have you and I done this? We look to God not to have God. We look to God to get the world. God, you're okay, but you're just kind of this, this uh, fetch it guy. I'm, I'm coming to you because what I most value are the things of this world. I'm not coming to you because you are the treasure. I think the treasures are in this world and that's what I want. So I'm just going to use you to get them for me. How insulting. How insulting. Well, the woman John is being shown in, in chapter 21 could not be any more different, could she? The angel says, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. This bride of the lamb of, are, are all of those who have placed saving faith in Christ, the Messiah, from both the old and the new covenants. And we'll see that described this morning. Thus the woman, the woman is the bride and she is a description of the people she represented, right? And as we will see this morning, she's also described as a city, the new Jerusalem. And while there may indeed be implications of a place in this description, so I don't want to carry this too far, there may be some implications that, that there is a place being described here, but I think more than that is what God is wanting to do to show us what the people of God will be like on that day when we see him face to face, and he's going to use how the, a city can represent his glory and his finished work in the life of his people. I think that's where this is taking us. So let's go to verse 10. Let's go and track this down. And so the angel takes him to a high mountain and then shows him not a bride, but a city. So remember what he says. I'm going to show you the, the bride of the lamb. Goes up to the high mountain. And so you and I, what would we be expecting? We would be expecting to see a bride. But instead of a bride, we see a city. What's happening here? Well, the angel says he's going to see the bride but he sees a city. What he sees is meant to help him understand more about what he heard. This isn't new to Revelation, is it? We saw it in, in chapter five. Uh, John is told about a victorious lion, a lion who conquers, right? He hears that news. But when he looks, he, he's expecting, I would guess, to see a lion, but what does he see? Uh, Good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to Revelation 21. Um, he sees what? A lamb. Thank you. Yes. So there's this, this imagery. He's told about a lion, but he's, he sees a lamb. Well, seeing the lion 
Um, seeing the lamb, what does that do? It helps him better understand how the lion conquered. And so it's, it's telling us the story. We get a better understanding of the lion by looking at the lamb. And I think we're going to get a better understanding of us as Christians by looking at the city. I think that's what this is, there's, where this has taken us this morning. As John beholds the city, it helps him better understand the bride. And I hope that that happens for us too. The city's not merely a place in glory, but it's a, about a glorified people. It's not just what we will be individually, but also what we will be like as a redeemed community. And can I just give a little tidbit on that? You know, we're starting our discipleship groups this, this week, and they're named discipleship groups for a purpose. We, we don't want to be fellowship plus church, a fellowship plus church, meaning, or a gospel plus church, meaning that, well, well we all say we're Christians. What we, the, the people we gather with are really, we're really gathering because we all love the Cowboys or the Saints or the Rangers or the, we're all Democrats or Republicans or we're all this or that. How many times does that happen in church life? We say we're Christians, but what's really holding us in common are, is something else. What holds us in common is Christ. And the reason we gather is to help each other grow as followers of Christ, to become more like him, to know him better, to serve him more fully and freely. And so this, this picture is not just about individual Christians. This is a picture of, of eternity in community. So I think we, better, we, we, we need to be thinking about that. I, I would go so far as to say it this way. I don't think that we will be any better individually as Christians than we are in community as Christians. Does that make sense? I mean, when have you, been, when have you grown the most as a believer? Has it been when you've, you've been really detached from, from church life? Not just Sunday morning attendance, but actually being involved in one of those lives in which you, 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 you confess sin, you ask for help, you encourage others, you're, you're devoted to prayer, you're, you're, you're sharing scripture with, you, with each other, you're experiencing spiritual gifts as God moves and encourages and equips his people. When have you grown the most? When you've been detached from the body of Christ? Or when you've been in community with the body of Christ? Well, I know the answer. It's what God's design is. And so he's not just speaking about us individually in heaven. You know, there's so many things that come to mind here. You know, like uh, I used to hear people talk, oh, I can't wait to get to my mansion in glory. Right? Well, the scripture talks about mansions. But I got to tell you something. I'm sick of being, I'm sick of living in a different neighborhood than God. <laughs> right? I mean, what is it? We're going to go to heaven and here, okay, this is great. And God says, hey, look over on that hill over there. There's a mansion for you. Well, that's great. I'll go live over here. <laughs> I don't want to live over here. I want to live in your presence. I want to, I want to learn. Listen, we're going to become like him, but we will never, in our, in our understanding of God, we will never fully understand God. We have the joy of anticipating growing in the knowledge of his love and his wisdom and his strength and his power for all of eternity. Oh, how that, that will be so great. Oh, that will be so great. So this is, this is not just about a place I think it's about a people. It's not just about individuals. I think it's also about a community of believers. Um, 
That, that, my precious friends, will instill far more hope and courage and faith and mission in flawed, sinful us. People who are tempted and persecuted. Uh, we, fi- we find ourselves in daily combat with sin and Satan. I think those images and those truths out of this text is gonna, what's going to really strengthen our hearts to persevere until we see him face to face. So the vision teaches us not so much about a place, but about a people, the bride of the lamb. This text is about God's perfect delight in his people and the promise of his covenant love to finish the work of salvation that he began by grace in us. Okay, so here we go. Let's go. So verse 11, here we go. So one of the first words, this is, I just love this passage. One of the first words John uses to describe what he sees, so the city is going to help us understand the bride, right? The place is going to help us better understand the people. So one of the first words John uses to describe what he sees is that it had the glory of God upon it, and it was radiant. For the city bride, I don't know if you put those together, I'm just going to say for the bride to have the glory of God upon it meant that it had become a pure and perfect expression of what he was like. So when we want to glorify God, when God is being glorified, one of the beautiful ways I heard that described was a rose when it's just in bud form, it's pretty, isn't it? But when it's, when it's in its glory is when it's fully revealed for what it is, Right? That's what, that's what it means for God to be glorified. He's being fully revealed for who he is with accuracy in a way that inspires worship and devotion and, and repentance and faith and courage and mission. Oh, oh, for the glory of God. What would it mean? What would it mean for the glory of God to be fully upon us? Well, that's going to happen on that day. We will be made like him. We will reveal what he is like because of the transformation he's made in our lives to finish the work of redemption that he began. And so there's this pure and holy and righteous and loving and gracious and patient and kind and powerful glory that we're going to be representing for all of eternity. When we see him, we will become like him. And you could say amen to that. And the city bride was radiant. And this is so fun. So let me see. Who who did I see? Eloise, I see you here. Where's your hubby? Is he working today? I shouldn't have asked. (laughs) Okay. The illustration will still work. Okay. So here we go. Here we go. Uh, Just trying to think of of our other newlyweds here. Okay. I'm not going to call anybody else out. I'm just going to get more in trouble there. Listen. There's a radiance, the word radiance, you guys. It describes not only brightness and light, that that word glory, there's, there's, there's light in all of this passage. But then he says radiance. And isn't that so often our first experience, husbands, when we saw the doors open? So back to New Orleans, Louisiana, Lakeview Christian Center. I'm standing there in my tux looking fly. to laugh whenever I talk like that because it really sounds like I'm a dingbat, I know. But So I'm, I, and, and the, the door is open. 
And I behold a radiant bride. Why is she radiant? Because I delight in her. It's, it's not just, oh, gorgeous you were. I'm so, is that like Yoda? Sounds like gorgeous you were. Um, oh, babe. Radiant. And oh, how I delighted in you then. And oh, sweetheart, how I delight in you now. It almost makes me want to sing to you. You want me to sing to you this morning? <laughs> Babe, come on. I sang to you then. No sing. Okay, let's keep moving. So, so you guys, so, so that's, there's, that, this, that's what's supposed to be evoked in our hearts about this. This is how God sees you. He delights in you as his radiant bride. He's, he loves to think of you with the fullness of his glory upon you. And I, I, that was delight was the experience I saw in my son's face when, when they looked into, when Will looked into Kelly's face when she came through the door, when Micah looked into Marissa's face when she came through the door. And October 3rd, <laughs> what, what I'm going to see on Josh's face when Alexis comes through the door. It's what James Avampado, even though he's hunting today, <laughs> it's, it's what was on his face when Eloise came through the door. It was on Heath's, in Heath Gladson's face as Emma came through the door. It was on Daryl Richardson's face as Eleni came into the door. Those are just shadows to point us to how God views his people, his bride. So I have to ask you this question. Do you believe God delights in you? Do you believe that? It's one of the most important things for you to believe because that's going to make such a difference when you're struggling with sin. That's going to make such a difference when you've fallen short again, when you gave in to anger when you are impatient and you remember there is a God who delights in me. Well, let's, let's discover why. Most of us struggle to believe this because we're more aware of God seeing all of our sins and failures. That's the way we still think God sees us. There seems to be too much dirt in our lives for there to be any delight in us. But what he sees is how the blood of the lamb not only cleanses you from all your sin, but precious ones, God sees you as a finished work. So he's in time. He's in real time. He's actively involved in your life. He's joined to you through the means of the Holy Spirit. But God sees you as a finished work. He delights in, the, in what he will accomplish in your life, not just what's happening right now. God is not like man. God does not reduce us to our most recent failure. And don't we do that to each other? When we get really upset or hurt by somebody, we reduce them to that one sin, that one failure, that one mistake. And that's, all we, that's how we relate to them. God does not relate to you that way. God relates to you because of the blood that was shed to cleanse you whiter than snow. And he relates to you. Awesome, but hey, let's finish it. Brad, it gets better. He relates to us because he sees us as perfected in the image of Christ forever. Now, go ahead and clap now. 
Oh, you guys. That's why this text was important to the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's why this text will give you strength because what we've been learning in this book, things are probably going to get harder than they're going to get easier. And these truths are going to stir us and ground us and give us hope and courage in, in moving forward. Oh, but it's so much of it comes back to, do you believe God delights in you? Do you believe that he delights in you and that he's promised to complete in you the work he began. Why will God delight in us so much? Because he's making us fully and finally like himself. We are legally, we're, we're declared righteous right now, right? We're ready. If you're a believer, because of the righteousness of Christ, forgiveness of your sins, and God giving you the gift of Christ's righteousness, you're ready for heaven now. But we're not practically righteous, are we? we? We still sin and fall short of the glory of God. God will fully and finally make us like himself. So notice the language in verse 12. The radiance was like a rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. There was no impurities. Jasper isn't clear as crystal. So this, is, this must be that all of the impurities have, have been delivered from it. But it's, what's most important to remember is this is similar language to what we see in Revelation 4 in the throne room. God himself is described as having the appearance of jasper and carmelian, and he's sitting before a sea of crystal. And then when we read about this in Revelation 21, we're learning that the church has become like its Lord. The church has become glorified and is like its savior. And so that's why this description of jasper, it's because we've become like him. We've become like him. We're going to be so full of the glory of God that we're going to radiate that same glory. It's of the same kind, not like God would do in all of his fullness, but the same kind of glory because we're representing him. Moses, when he came down from Mount Sinai, do you remember that? He had to put a veil over his face because it shined with the glory of God. Why? Because he'd been in the presence of God. And, and that was for a few moments, really over, over the, the giving of the law. What would the church be like? What will we be like to be fully glorified and become like our Savior in his holy character? How do we radiate God's glory? That's what the text is describing. So today, you know, there's things, um, and you know, uh, this was at uh, Daryl and Eleni's wedding. Today, things glow in the dark, I guess, because of just chemicals. I don't, you know, those things that they, they're immediately glowing in the dark, right? You, know, you just twirl those things and everything. It's all exciting to do at weddings or nighttime and, and all that kind of stuff. Back in my day, you had to work hard to get something to glow in the dark, <laughs> right? You had to, like, so I had a glow-in-the-dark Frisbee. Any older people have glow-in-the-dark Frisbees beside me? Yeah? Well, what did we do with them? We had to put them under a light, and we sat there. You're right, I'm just waiting. Is it, and then we go in the closet. Remember, we go in the closet. Oh, so we put it back under the light. But there's a principle there, isn't it? Being in the presence of that light changed it. It brought out 
a light. It brought out a radiance. It, it brought out a beauty. And that's what, this, that's what the text is saying. We're going we're gonna to be glorious in his eyes because we're going to be shining a light that is radiant and radiating out from the light that he's shining upon us. It's a picture of a glorious church, precious ones. It's a picture of a glorious church that Satan can't stop and that your sin can't stop. Jesus fully paid the price for that sin. And he has promised to take you all the way home. All the way home. So this city helps us understand the bride of Christ. It has the light of the glory and presence of God reigning with it. Dennis Johnson puts it this way. I think this is in your notes. The Lord of glory indwells his people and floods his new community with the beauty of his holiness. Verse 12, John says he next sees a wall and it's great and high and there are 12 gates and there's an angel at each gate. It's not to keep people out now. Remember the angels were stationed at the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned? To keep them out. These angels aren't keeping people out. They're welcoming the saints in. This isn't so much a place, but it's a welcome into his presence and joy. It's a welcoming to him. We can't live in his glorious presence without constantly experiencing the beauty of his covenant-keeping love for us. And that's what I think is the rest of this, this section. Each gate has the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And that points us to God's covenant promises. God keeps his covenant promises. The promise he made to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and that all peoples of the earth would one day be blessed through the son that would be born through Abraham's family. Well, these tribes represented God's covenant-keeping love for those under the old covenant that believed in the promised Messiah. So this is representing of all the people that had placed faith in the coming Messiah. God kept his covenant with them even though they broke covenant with him so regularly. The names are inscribed not because they were great in themselves, right? Sometimes we would think that, oh, yeah, like in the things, the monuments, the memorials today, you know, we, we see somebody's name inscribed on something and we think, oh, it's because they're great. Not on this, not on this. You think of, you think of the, the 12 tribes of Israel? Not a lot to write home about, right, with them. You think of the apostles, not a lot to write home about. We're a bunch of messes, aren't we? It's not that we're great. These, these names are inscribed there because we've been greatly loved. Our names are there because he is keeping covenant with us in spite of the judgment we deserved. Verse 13, there was three gates on the east, the north, the south, and the, and the west, very similar to how God grouped the 12 tribes around the tabernacle where he expressed his presence in the Old Testament. Verse 14, it talks about 12 foundation stones with the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, men who were deeply sinful, flawed, and broken, and men who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God would save and he would authorize these men to testify to and lay the doctrinal foundations of the gospel under the leader and, and under the leadership and gave birth to the church and grew the church under their leadership. And God just continued to keep his covenant promises 
to save people from every ethnicity on earth. So that's, that's what's being described here is this gathering of people from all nations, both from the old and new covenant. And all of it speaks of God's promise to not just save you, but to sanctify you. There's got to be people here this morning and you've grown really discouraged because there's, a, there's some sin issues in your life and you're just not feeling like you're winning and gaining any ground on them at all. God will keep his covenant promise to you to not only save you, but to change you and to bring you all the way home. That's what we're learning about the bride in this description of the city. The second point is God's delights to give us perfect security in his finished work. Verse 15 says that the one who spoke had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The reason cities were measured was to certify that the work was finished in the city. Whether you want to call it like an inspector or whatever, they were measured to certify that the work is finished. It's done. And the other element of that was the city safe. City safe. That's what these measurements are about. When the temple temple was measured in Revelation 11, only part of it was measured. And the people in that part of the temple were promised to be kept spiritually safe, if you remember. But the outer court was not measured. And it said it would be overrun by the nations. And what we were remembering here is that before the second coming of Christ, precious ones, God will keep his people spiritually secure. There's no doubt about your salvation. But you may pay a price for it. God has not promised physical safety this side of heaven, has he? He's promised you security of your soul. That he will keep you and take you all the way home. But you may die as a witness for Christ. So that's what's happening here. But these measurements in this new Jerusalem, this this city describing a bride, these perfectly describe both physical and spiritual security for all eternity because God finished the work. Not Not just in building a city, but in building you. I mean, think of what that will be like. I don't know what your big three sins are, They won't even, you won't even remember them when you stand before him. They will never haunt you again. Why? Not because you've become your best version of yourself. That phrase, oh, just be your best version of yourself. No, no, no. You want to be like Jesus. That's what we want to be. We want to be more like our Savior. I don't want to be more like me. I don't even want to be the best version of me. I want to be someone who represents his perfections and his glory and his love and his transforming grace. And may he get all the glory for it, right? Oh, so God will save us and make us physically and spiritually secure because he's finished the work he began in us. Verse 16 tells us that the city is described as a cube, 1,500 miles in length and width and height. In other words, I think this is actually a testimony to the height and length and width and breadth of God's love for us. That's all we're going to live in for eternity. It's just this unfathomable, hard word to say, but I, I love the meaning of it. Love, perfect security in this love. 
There's only one other place, you guys know this in scripture, where there's a perfect cube spoken of. And it's the Holy of Holies in the, in the tabernacle and temple. But in this cube of holiness, only the high priest could go once a year. But now this city, the city's large, isn't it? I mean, I mean what was that? 1,500 miles? I, it's hard even, it boggles the mind. There's plenty of room here. Plenty of room for people from every ethnicity. If you don't know Jesus, plenty of room in this place for you. In fact, it's not just, it's not just uh, getting into the city limits. God would invite you to his table to fellowship with him forever in his perfect love and his perfect forgiveness. We're not just going to enter the Holy of Holies, precious ones. We will have become living expressions of the Holy of Holies because God himself is living in us, not a building. He's living among us, not a temple. Verse 17 described the wall, 144 cubits. Well, here we go again with the 12s. 12 times 12, so it's just reminding us that all of the redeemed from the Old Covenant and New Covenant are connected together in community in holiness and love and security. Verses 19 and 20, the beauty of the bride's holiness is expressed in the beauty of the purity of jewels seen on the foundations of the wall. These were, the, these were sto stones that were worn upon the chest of the high priest. He, the high priest carried the people on his heart as he offered sacrifice after sacrifice for their sins. But now, through the finished work of Christ at the cross, and in the second coming, Christ now carries us on his heart, not because he's having to continue to offer sacrifices anymore, but because he's made us like himself. We are as close to him in holiness then as we could have ever dreamed of being, not just positional, but practical. So what is it that the... And, what is it at the, at the foundation that makes the church beautiful? Well, it's Christ's finished work at the cross. And that's what I believe the pearly gates are talking about. The 12 gates were made of pearls, pointing to a pearl of great price. The one and only Savior who shed his own blood for sinners deserved judgment, but were given grace and mercy. This is a pearl worth saying goodbye to everything else and forsaking everything else in order to receive it as a gift. And this priceless pearl of Christ makes us priceless in the eyes of God because of Christ's work on our behalf. Scripture says the gates never close. There's no need for locks in verse 25. This is the place of perfect security. John's not describing an eternally secure place, Dennis Johnson says. He's describing eternally secure people. I love, don't you love the difference? Don't we look for secure places? I mean, isn't that kind of the story now? You have to find a safe place and all these things. Is there really such a thing in this sinful world? I don't think there's going to be an utterly safe place. But you can be secure people. And you will be perfectly secure as you are with him for eternity. I want to ask you, Think of how much our lives are affected day to day because we lack security. One reason is we can't trust people. 
We see it in the proliferation of home security systems. Isn't it good to know that Simply Safe will go out of business <laughs> in the New Jerusalem? You won't need a ring doorbell that, that shows you what porch pirate is coming to take your Amazon package. If there are Rottweilers and pit bulls in the new heavens and earth, it won't be because they're guard dogs. They're going to be cute. <laughs> and they're going to lick you to death when you come to visit. One of the most pressurized issues of travel is going through security at the airport. I just get exhausted going through security. Um, because of those who seek to do us harm, there won't be any need for metal detectors and x-ray machines in the New Jerusalem. We so long for security that we often compromise our faith to get the American dream. If we only had enough money so we wouldn't have to worry, and then the Fed raises interest rates, and we face crazy inflation, and then the high gas prices, and Am I going to have enough money to pay bills? Look, the issue of security is always pounding on us, isn't it? Will there be anyone in the president's office who knows how to balance a checkbook and stay out of debt and protect our country with, from people with evil intent? Will, will the medical test I took last week come back malignant or benign? Will my broken relationship ever be made whole? Can I ever know security after what I've been through? The way I was treated, the way I was neglected, the hurt that was perpetrated against me, the abuse I suffered, is it even possible for somebody like me to experience security? And you know, we're not just insecure because of what others do to us. Isn't a lot of our insecurity because we know we ain't all that? I'm insecure because of how much I fail. What would it be like, you guys, to be perfectly secure spiritually and physically? Well, these verses remind us at this very moment, we are spiritually secure in Christ through his forgiveness, his gift of righteousness, his adoption of us as sons and daughters, his loving and empowering presence in us. And we can have unquenchable hope in the perfect security that we're going to have one day physically, not just spiritually. <clears throat> and I think that changes the way we walk. And I think that's where these streets of gold come in. We're called today to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as Christians. We walk a different path than the world. We don't walk it perfectly, but one day, one day we're going to walk it so perfectly, it's going to be described as walking on streets of gold. Revelation spoke of the streets of Jerusalem as being a place of persecution and shame by the world. Remember the martyrs that were slain in the streets of Jerusalem. Now the streets are gold because there's no more shame. There's no more persecution. And we will be made fully righteous and walking in a manner worthy of Christ. Oh, you guys, and the last part is this, that God's not just delighting in these things. God's delighting in what will be missing in the new Jerusalem. And, yeah, and I just love this part too. I mean, it just, I just gotta love this part. Um, what is amazing about this city is not only what's present, but what's absent. Alan started it last week. No more tears, 
no more death, no more crying, no more pain, all missing. Hallelujah. Verse 22, no temple in the city. Why, the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. God himself dwells with us and, and, and we dwell with him, no longer by faith, but by sight. There's no sun or moon for the glory of God is the light and the Lamb is the lamp. Verses 24 and 26, by its light shall the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, their honor into it, their worship, their love, their gratitude. The gates will never be shut and there will be no night there. And all who are written in the Lamb's book of life are here. But verse 27 also says what will be missing. It says nothing unclean, detestable or false will be in that place i.e., this is good news. Nothing unclean, detestable, or false will be in us. Guys, that's what's messing our lives up now. The way people treat us, that's a problem. Our bigger problem is our sinful responses. Our bigger problem is our unbelief. Our bigger problem is always the sins that we manufacture. And won't that be a day when the people that are living together in the presence of Jesus in glory, there'll be nothing unclean, nothing detestable, and nothing false. See, Revelation gives us the most glorious view of the church in glory so that we can have great hope for the still sinful, selfish, insecure, weak, and persecuted church today. That's why this is here. Remember Revelation 2 and 3, what those churches were like. Some got their doctrine right. They were good doctrine churches, but they hated people. It's like, they, you ever been in a church like that? Oh, they teach the Bible. But that, do they love anybody? Does anybody love anybody in this church? Well, that's what was going on in those churches. Some of those churches. And then the, the people that were really welcoming, icy, you know, that kind of stuff. They were horribly undiscerning and didn't, have, didn't seem to have a biblical radar for what was true and false. Oh, my goodness. And it wasn't just that. It was toleration of sin. Acceptance of, 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 of a far lower expression of what Christianity is than what the way Jesus would describe it and the life he would give to a believer. Big churches like Sardis put on a good show outwardly, but there was no growth in holiness. They were empty and dead on the inside. Rich church like Laodicea, Jesus was ready to spit that church out of his mouth because they thought they had everything they needed in earthly blessings rather than in God himself. Pergamum was said to dwell where Satan's throne was and yet held fast to the name of Christ. That's good, did not deny the faith, but what a place to live, <laughs> right? And then and other churches are, are beginning to see them, their very own members killed. I mean, picture that. The person you're sitting next to dies this week because somebody kills them because they're a Christian. This is, this is what was going on in those first seven churches that are described in Asia Minor. And things were only going to get worse in persecution. And then the Lord shows them 
why the battle's going to be hard, right? So here's the panorama of Revelation. He shows them why the battle's going to be hard and why they need the blood of the Lamb to overcome. And he unpacks the spiritual warfare they're going to face from Satan and the beast, the false prophet, the great prostitute. In times of tribulation, they're going to have to endure. How would God want to give hope and vision and compel living on mission for him? It's by having the letter of Revelation read. I mean, can you imagine? So we've taken, I don't know how many weeks we've been in Revelation. But when they pass that letter around, they're reading it in about an hour. And, and picture this. You're reading this book. Bombs are falling around you. Not literally. But, but, but the, Rome, the Roman emperors are on your tail. The, 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 the attractiveness of the world is beckoning you. That's what's happening all around you. And here comes the letter of Revelation. And you're reading about all of these things and the kind of people we are and how we fall short. And you get to the end of the book. And it says, this is what you're going to be like in glory. And now you work backwards to what we can be like today. That's what's happening here. That's why God would want to give hope and vision and compel living on mission for him. Because the letter's being read in one sitting, showing them his plan for what, for what they will be like as a delight to him. Glorified by him, living in his presence. Showing them what they will be like on that day to encourage them in the work that God's currently doing to sanctify them today and make them more like Christ. So let me bring this home. 1 John 3, look at, the, look at your notes, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see the effect? We see what we're going to be like by his grace in glory. And that works backwards to give us fresh motivation to join him in that transformation today, knowing he's going to finish what he began. Does that make sense? So can I just get really personal with this about you, with you? I don't know how to describe this, guys. It's, 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 I, this is my horrible illustrations, but was it Star Trek that had the tractor beam? It's horrible. We go from all this glory to Star Trek, but. Romans 8 says that those whom he foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ and those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, glorified. Past tense. Why is God speaking of a future event in the past tense? Because it's done. It's as good as done in his eyes. That's why I say, there, you guys... What great hope to see what we will be. I look right now, I'm pretty disgusted with me. But I see what he will make me. And it just, it just freshly reminds me that there is this grace of sanctification, this tractor beam that is drawing me toward glory. 
and God will complete what he began in me. And I can look at myself in the mirror again. Guys, I look in the mirror so many times, I'm so disgusted with the man I see in the mirror, the, the, the mirror on my bathroom wall. I have a lot of hope for the man I see in this mirror and what God would want to do in my life. I'm so glad that all that is lacking in me now will be missing on that day. I'm so glad. I'm so looking forward to that. I'm so looking forward to that. And so I have fresh hope and I, it helps me fight self-condemnation and giving up and thinking that I can never change and all those things. But it doesn't just help us personally. Think about marriage. Think about what this would do for your marriage. That, I mean, don't you sometimes, don't we do that? Sweetheart, don't we do that sometimes? <laughs> I wish you could see the faces my wife makes at me. Sweetheart, don't we do that sometimes? We get into intense fellowship because we don't fight. We, get, we have intense fellowship and, and it's just so easy to start relating to each other on the offenses that we're doing to each other. And, 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 and it's so easy to start giving up on a person who's offending you. Well, you know what? Listen, if God has promised that that is my eternal destiny, isn't he promised the same for my wife? And do you ever kind of go, Lord, you know, I'm, I need to change, but, you know, oh, almost like fiddler on the roof. But Lord, could my wife change a little bit too, you know? <laughs> and don't we, sometimes in marriage, we, we, we know our own sin habits, but we see our spouse's sin habits. And we can get so derailed and discouraged to think, gosh, I don't know if my spouse is ever going to change. And, but you don't look at their sin habits. Look at the city. Look at the bride. Look at what God has promised to make them. That's your hope. Not what you're seeing right now. You're, what you see in the book. And then God says, and you know what I want you to do? I want you to join me in helping them become that person. You'll never give up on your spouse if you see the beauty of what God will make them in glory. How about this? Those of you guys who are thinking about pastoral ministry, our small group leaders, listen, this is why your pastors will never give up on you in this church because we're, we're not gonna reduce you to your most recent sin. We're not gonna do that. This is a safe place to struggle and contend and grow and confess sin and all of those things. We're not going to reduce you to your most recent sin. We're going we're to fellowship with you according to the blood that was shed for your sin and the promise of glory, the kind of person you're going to become when you stand before him on that day. That's why we'll never give up on you. That's why we will never give up on you. Please hear that. I think there's a lot of Christians. Some of you maybe even in this church today because you were in a church fellowship once and they, and they just reduced you to your failures. There may be ministers in this room today and you've grown weary and discouraged about ministry because you were reduced to your failures. And God says, look at the bride. Look at the city. That is my promise. That's who you're going to be. That's how you're, I already see you in my eyes. 
And I think that's how the people of God are to see each other. Of all people on earth, we should be the least to give, the last to give up on any believer. Amen? I always tell people, you guys, that you're the, you're the best kept secret in Midland. You're an amazing church. Not because you yourself are amazing. The grace you've received is amazing. Your love for the Savior is compelling. Oh, how beautiful and what a delight you are in the eyes of the Lord. And you are in our eyes as well. And I can't wait to see what God continues to do in changing us to be more like him as we prepare for that day when the work will be finished. Amen. What time is it? That's a bad thing for a pastor to ask. <laughs> Do you have a song? Eric? Do you, uh, do, you have, do you have a song? Yeah, come on up, buddy. How's the Holy Spirit worked in your heart with this today? Uh, just yourself. Have you been just kind of almost ready to give up just in yourself, your own walk with God? Have you been discouraged and despaired about just the condition of your marriage and maybe had your eyes a lot on your spouse's deficiencies or, or failures? How about us as a church family? Have do we grow weary with one another because we are reducing each other to the moment and to the mistake or to the sin rather than seeing each other for what God has promised to make us and then saying, Lord, here we are. We want to be a people that you use to, to uh, help one another grow in that, in that Christ-likeness until you fully perfect it. Isn't that what marriage is supposed to be? I'm, I'm supposed to walk Jan all the way to heaven. I'm, I'm supposed to live in such a way that I'm promoting her godliness. I'm supposed to not want the benefits I get from her Christian life. I, I want her to receive countless rewards of grace when she stands before the Lord, fully perfected, as the woman he always called her to be. And I want to play just the tiniest part in inspiring that woman for that day. Let's stand, guys. Let's stand.